we can see phenomena which are saying, well, wait a minute, we don't accept this liberal monopoly. We are Democrats, but we're not liberal Democrats. Welcome to the fifth episode of Uncommon Decency. Europe's mainstream media has stressed the illiberalism of Hungary's government, much of the time in an effort to discredit the policies of its Prime Minister Viktor Orban. But Orban himself has also claimed the term illiberal democracy. So what is a liberal democracy? George Schofflin brings a wealth of experience to shed light into this. A former academic turned head of Fidesz's delegation in the European Parliament, George recently turned back to writing upon retiring from politics. He's fresh off publishing two books this year. We hope you'll enjoy the episode, and please remember to rate and review the podcast on Apple so that others can hear about it too. episode of Uncommon Decency, a podcast that seeks to translate Europe's rich intellectual landscape for American audiences and, and audiences really beyond and even within Europe. And today we are delighted uh, to be joined by uh, Professor George Schopflin. Thank you so much for joining us, Professor. Pleasure. And Professor Schopflin really is, a, is an exceptional intellectual. He also served as a member of the European Parliament um, all the way from, I believe, uh, 2004 was when you joined until 2019. Is that right? Yep. 15 years. 15 years. Wow. He was he served in various uh, committees and had really a, a um, distinguished service in, in Strasbourg and Brussels. He was an MEP for Fidesz, uh, the Christian Democrat um, Party in, in Hungary, yep. um, which is, by the way, now, as of now, suspended by the European People's Party, but it's still um, as a de facto member of the, the grouping we'll see, we'll see maybe that's that's going to be a, an issue for us to, to, to discuss later on uh, but as an academic professor Schopflin has been a professor at uh, the school of slavonic and east european studies at ucl in london also at the lse um he's uh, he's a graduate of the university of glasgow and of the college of europe right and brood yep. um, he's worked at the royal institute of international affairs and at the bbc in the uk which is where he spent a big chunk of his life um he's now joining us from from estonia which we're uh, very grateful uh to him for since uh estonia is one hour behind which means that he's tuning in at 6 p.m on a friday which professor shoplin is the author most recently of uh, a contested europe which is a collection of essays that was published with uh helena history press a fascinating collection of essays and most recently He's the author of uh, a forthcoming book uh, called The European Policy. Stay tuned for when that gets released and make sure you grab a copy as well. My, my first question to you, uh, Professor, would be, can you just describe kind of what your thought process has been recently since leaving the European Parliament a year ago, more than a year ago, actually, uh, and what, what, what are the topics that you cover in, in those two recent books? Well, what I cover in the two recent books and my thought processes since then are not the same. I haven't stopped thinking just because I've retired, as it were. Uh, what I've found very, very interesting, and this has been intellectually very challenging, is trying to understand the impact of complexity theory on contemporary politics. I'm talking about the butterfly effect and emergent properties and irreversible processes. With Because let me put it slightly differently or approach it from a slightly different angle. These processes were generally present, uh, but globalization has weakened the state, nation state, 
whatever state you want to call it, um, which so it no longer has as much power to create order and stability as it did, in consequence of which these uh, complex processes, these non-linear processes, are affecting politics. Mm. Um, and we can see this at the European level, we can see this at the member state level, we can see this, I suspect, even at the local level. Um, it's, if you like, it's the world of unintended consequences, with, which actually mm. democracy copes rather badly, because democracy expects that rules will be followed, and yesterday's rules will be fine today and tomorrow. And what complexity theory is telling me is that not necessarily so. So that's really been the most recent thing. But I've also been following what's happening in the European Union, primarily, obviously, the European Parliament, where I still have friends, possibly antagonists, uh, who knows. Um, so I've, I keep a kind of weather eye on, on Brussels. I mean, I spent 15 years trying to understand Europe as a political entity. Um, and it seems to me that um, we can get into this in detail later on, but what I've been arguing, it's there in the European policy that the liberal capture of democracy and the liberal mm. capture of European integration is hardening up the battle lines. The fact, which I think is not widely noticed outside Brussels, that the right-wing political groupings, uh, not the People's Party itself, the EPP, but the Conservatives and then the Europe of Identity, has basically been put behind the cordon sanitaire. Uh, they've been mm. subjected to an overt political exclusion. Now, if you're a Democrat, what you're basically saying is, we don't recognize your democratic credentials. It doesn't matter that people voted for you. We don't recognize the votes of those people either. At this point, we are teetering at the edge of something other than democracy. You know, one person, one vote. Well, not quite. Uh, and I think this is the, the most uh, dubious development of the last year and a half. Mm. And then, of course, much more in the mainstream, the package that was put together in July, which has still to go, has to go through, that uh, a one-off uh, bond purchase, a direct grant mm. of whatever it is, 310 billion, um, which I think will have, but I'm just guessing, quite interesting consequences because you will recall that the so-called frugals the Dutch and the Scandinavians mm. and the Austrians were very hostile to this redistribution. They said loans only. Uh, and I think that if you give the Dutch Prime Minister, Mark Rutte, mm -hmm. uh, a close reading, he's very close to saying, we will monitor how this money is spent. So it's not mm. just the European Union and the Commission which is doing monitoring, but member state to member state monitoring, uh, which okay, Hungary and Poland have been subjected to for years, but imagine how this will go down in Italy, when you know, Dutch journalists start sniffing around to say, well, how is this? How is our taxpayers' money spent? These lazy, idle southerners, I'm sure you know the stereotype. So I can see hidden landmines uh, in, mm. in this sort of area. Uh, mm -hmm. So the European Union 
as a political entity, in a sense, still has to acquire a sense of itself as a political actor, uh, and it's not really doing this. Uh, it's still the captive of integrate everything, integrate everything at all costs. And this, I think, uh, means that it's very difficult for it to face up to crises like Belarus, crises like Crimea, crises like the Syrian war, uh, because it has conflicting member state interests uh, and it doesn't quite know how to create a single European interest. Uh, and then you have the, the various north-south gap, the east-west gap, the frugals against non-frugals, and lots and lots of various different uh, divisions. Sure. And you've really set us up for, for, for a great conversation here. Right? I mean, you, you, call, you, you essentially concede that the EU is a polis, but it lacks a demos, and that, runs, that argument runs throughout your book. And I, I want to delve deeper into what you started out with, which is the liberal co-optation of democracy, right? And, and you, were, you and I were discussing offline just before going live that, you know, there, it's, it's particularly striking in Europe when we have century, you know, decades of political traditions of everything from Christian democracy to social democracy. But now there's one vision of democracy, which is really kind of claiming it is the only way that you can live democratic. And in, in, the, in the European polis, you explain that the EU was initially conceived as a, as a project to, to smooth out disagreements. And it, it may have done so for a few decades, but what it's become lately is a punitive mechanism to punish countries that aren't on, on board. And I, I wonder if you could reflect maybe on some of the recent examples of that. Obviously, we've seen the EU's open season against um, judiciary reforms in, in Poland. We've seen uh, this, much the same happened with Hungary's uh, dealing with a migrant crisis. Can you kind of, what are, how do you contextualize there what has happened with particular Central Europe? Well, I'll go back to what I see as the beginning of this process, the transformation of democracy to the collapse of communism, which put social democracy in a dilemma. What does it mean to be left-wing now that the so-called socialist project has collapsed and there were always some links between social democracy and communism, uh, you know, from 1917-1991. What's the right metaphor here? Uh, a weakening of the meaning of social democracy together with the importation of the market as the primary agent of redistribution, uh, which is historically um, the province of the right, except that, and this is something which I know Americans find very difficult to understand, in Europe the tradition was that the market should be framed. You will know the French term, l'encadrement du marché, the framing of the market. In other words, that yes, of course, we do have a market, but the state has a role in ensuring that any excesses created by market processes are, if you like, uh, held in check. So there isn't the kind of extreme difference in or extreme inequality, which we have today. Uh, now that went uh, it was abandoned by the left. And at that point, um, particularly Tony Blair, of course, said, no, we have the best of 
both left and right. Um, market is the answer. Uh, and that allowed a kind of liberal thought world to capture the entire left and from there to capture democracy. Uh, I will freely admit that the term liberal democracy existed prior to 89. It did. Uh, but nobody quite knew what it meant. And nobody, I think, quite said, well, liberal democracy is the only democracy. And people were perfectly ready to accept social democracy, Christian democracy, conservatism. Um, and this is what changed. So liberalism said the early democracy is, li is liberal democracy, and it resulted in a redefinition, a tightening of the terms of both liberalism and of democracy, of who we accept as democratic, who we do not. Um, and this is the process that we're in uh, with a second step that I think I would date this to the Lisbon Treaty, 2009, uh, that integration, European integration, became a part of the liberal project, which meant that if you were in any way Eurocritical, you were not only critical of the integration process, but of liberalism and of liberal democracy. So the package sort of neatly comes together. Um, this is where we are now. And it's, it's an unhealthy process, which is, from my point of view, unhealthy for liberals as well, because you really have the beginnings, possibly even more in advanced state of what Isaiah Berlin called monism, a single set of ideas, totally dominant and excluding everything else, there's certainly a kind of liberal intolerance, which then manifests itself, as you quite rightly say, in the liberal offensive against Orbán's Hungary, uh, peace in Poland, and anything else that happens to pop up, uh, which the last year, this happens to be an Estonian point, there were elections in Estonia, and the rather right-wing party, not a fascist party, but a, a right-wing party, ECRE, won just under 20% of the vote. And everybody said, oh my God, oh my God, it's even happening in Estonia. In other words, uh, and you can see this, the horror, shock, horror, dismay, when the alternative for Deutschland, which is a hard right party, gets, I think, 13, 14%, uh, and is actually... I think it is the largest opposition party in the German parliament. So, plus, of course, Marine Le Pen, Herr Wilders uh, in the Netherlands. So we can see phenomena which are saying, well, wait a minute, we don't accept this liberal monopoly. We are Democrats, but we're not liberal Democrats. For liberals, this is intolerable. Why Hungary? Which I think is actually part of the question. Well, partly because... I can't prove this. Uh, it's, a, it's, a, it's a sense I have that the West has always had difficulty in placing Hungary. What kind of a country is this? They speak this totally impossible language. Uh, how can you have a language in which there are words like It's it's a, it's a made-up word. You know, that's the point about Hungarian. You can stick words together and 
have very long words. Um, or the way in which Hungary really came out very badly out of the First World War, it lost two-thirds of its territory. Um, how does the West deal with this? West imposes an appalling uh, territorial dispensation and says, you don't have an alternative. Um, is there a guilt effect there? Well, maybe we'll just keep quiet about it. Um, the French, of course, basically deny the very existence of the Treaty of Trianon. So there is a kind of difficulty uh, with Hungary that then acquires shape, especially from 2010, when Fidesz, my political party, Orban, uh, not just to win the elections, I think that was pretty clear uh, by a number of, number of years, but acquire a constitutional majority. And Orban at that point defined Fidesz as a, a centre-right party. I think he hadn't started using the word illiberal anyway, uh, or Christian Democrat, although sort of in the air. Um, and from the left's point of view, this is totally scandalous. How can it be that a centre-right party, which is obviously on the wrong side of history, by the way, get a two-thirds majority? It's absurd. So at that point, they start noticing Hungary, and something very important happens. The pre previous government, uh, uh, a socialist liberal coalition, was terrible. They accumulated an enormous debt, uh, and when Peters opened the books, they found that it was even worse than they had thought. So at that point, Orban went to Brussels to say, look, um, we really have this very large gap in our finances. Can we have better terms? Can we have uh, an exception to the 3% rule? And they were told no. Um, and it was expected that he would introduce orthodox restriction austerity, and he said, I can't do this. Uh, my voters will not accept more austerity. So he then introduced the so-called unorthodox policy of taxing the banks and insurance companies and uh, basically anybody who could be taxed. The West found this directly going against the spirit of, of markets uh, policies, found the scandal. And actually, a lot of the problems started there. Then at the end of 2010, um, a little prematurely in my view, uh, the Hungarian parliament passed the new media law, uh, what the supervision of the media should be, basically putting together a law that drew on the experiences of other European countries. I think the tactical error was to start it then, because the 1st of January was when the Hungarian presidency of the EU be began. So politically, uh, we were on a downslope and in a way remained there. Technically, uh, the Hungarian president was perfectly successful and I think everybody acknowledged that. And in a way, there was a kind of open season on Hungary ever since. Um, and if you look at the Western media, now I read fluently in three languages and rather less fluently in another three, so I do try to keep some idea, keep going, keep some sense of what's going on in German, French, 
obviously Belgian, uh, to some extent Italian and Dutch media. And there's a kind of single overriding sense that whatever is happening in Hungary, it's bad. Uh, and you can't argue with this. This is a proposition that uh, everybody knows is true. I can't quite quote the beginning of Pride and Prejudice for you. It is a truth you commonly accepted that you remember the rest of it. Uh, and it's, it's a commonly accepted proposition that Orban is almost fascist, it's a self-declared illiberal, it's dubious. Now, this is made much worse by two factors. One is the impenetrability of the Hungarian language. People don't read material in Hungarian. And secondly, the very successful campaign by the Hungarian opposition to delegitimate Fidesz, to blacken Fidesz's name, um, and this works. Um, but the irony is, it doesn't do anything to help the Hungarian opposition. They still are nowhere. Fidesz is getting a steady 51, 52% in the polls. Um, and given the Hungarian electoral system, that certainly means something very close to a two-thirds majority. Um, there is a premium for the winning, just as there is in Greece and some extent France. It's not unique to Hungary, even in Germany. Uh, the only country, I think, which is totally proportional is the Netherlands. And they have the problem, how on earth do we put a government together? Because that's what you get with uh, perfect proportionality. So in a way, this is the... Uh, the, the answer on Hungary. Poland, again, um, Poland is a, is a bigger problem because Poland is a bigger country. You know, Hungary is a population of just under 10 million. Poland is about 38 million. Uh, so Poland, especially after Brexit, is a big player in Europe. So if Poland is now being ruled by a dubious right-wing self-professed Catholic coalition, then, wait a minute, what does this say about uh, the liberal integration process? How can one be simultaneously European and either Polish or Hungarian right? How can the right wing be European? So this is where I, I this is how I put the, the jigsaw puzzle together. There are lots and lots of elements um, and it's very difficult to see how this can be changed. I don't yet see uh, the factor uh, that will create a rethinking on the part of the European left. I don't see it yet. It will happen, but who knows yeah. when. So, yeah, I have, a, I have a few questions. There's obviously a very confrontational relationship between Western media and, um, and, and Hungary, but let's go through a few of the kind of accusations, essentially. Mm -hmm. um, uh, for example, one of the earliest accusations was when Hungary uh, reduced the age limits, uh, maximum age limits for its Supreme Court judges from 70 years old uh, to 62. All, all judges. Yes, all judges, um, all judges. which in included uh, the Supreme Court and essentially forced out the Supreme Court president. Um, and, and Hungary was, yeah. was uh, later um, condemned by the European Court of Human Rights and by yes. the European Court of Justice. Um, then there's, there's the accusation of um, on immigration, uh, which was featured heavily in the Sargentini report of 2018 and essentially accused yep. Hungary of building fences and treating immigrants uh, inhumanely. 
um, and then there's, there's the accusation for remedial law. So if we could go through all three of them, because I think it's interesting to hear a different well, version uh, sure. on all of these. I mean, as far as the judiciary is concerned, the problem was the same, by the way, as in Poland, that there were many communist-era judges still bringing in verdicts, which really, let's put it kindly, went against the spirit of the law. So what Orban tried to do was to say, okay, fine, uh, we will appoint new judges and the existing judiciary can retire. Now this, as you quite right to say, was struck down. Um, and Orban said, okay, fine, uh, we'll take them back. And they did indeed take them back. Some of them took early retirement. Others were given new jobs. So it was a kind of standoff, which I think, well, you know, kind of one equal, one point to the West, one point to Hungary on that. Uh, your second point, I'll, I'll deal with the media law first. Mm -hmm. um, the problem was that in 2010, nobody remembers this now, there really was a very powerful left-wing hegemony of the media. Everything was determined to create a balance. The media law was actually there to create this media authority uh, with the aim of not so much of uh, changing the political balance, uh, which I don't think Peter has ever really said it would do, uh, but to clean it up a bit. Because you know, a lot of television at that particular point was full of obscenity, uh, pornography, which I think had to be stopped. And I would generally accept that. Um, my, I have a particular memory that uh, the media law obviously went to the commission. And initially, the commission didn't really do very much of it. And then there was a terrible hullabaloo in the Western media. Here is this dreadful media law, etc. And the commissioner, the audiovisual commissioner, the Dutch Nelly Kroos, I can still see her standing up there and said, we've looked very closely at this, yes. We've looked at it very, very seriously. We've subjected it to all sorts of stringent tests. And there are the following things which will have to be changed. The four rather marginal issues, I don't remember what they are now. So basically, although the commissioner went through the media law with a fine-tooth comb, it couldn't find anything very objectionable in it. So the media in Hungary... Uh, I know nobody wants, will believe me if they read the New York Times, um, is actually, uh, in some areas, I think, there is a Fidesz preponderance in other areas. There's a left-wing preponderance. I would say in television, the left, left does have preponderance. The official channels... Well, actually not, I would say this out loud, they're not as good as the left-wing channels. And I think both sides have their audiences. There are silos, there are communication silos. In the internet media, um, I would say the left probably still has a majority. Um, print media, which is dying, incidentally, uh, in Budapest, it's sort of 50-50. Uh, in the countryside, uh, in, in provincial Hungary, probably there's a Fidesz preponderance. 
Um, but remember, I mean, it's no big deal to start your own internet portal. Uh, it's, no, it's not even terribly expensive. Uh, so there's a, a huge variety of opinion in Hungary from the very, very nasty extreme right to the very equally nasty extreme left. So uh, nobody sees that, that actually the loudest critics of Fidesz are on the far right. Uh, you know, that's worse than Jobbik. Uh, I hate to have to say this, but uh, I mean, well, you have to read Hungarian to see the, you know, the conspiracy theorists, alt-right uh, attacks on Fidesz. Um, and, okay, in no country is media freedom perfect, but you can basically say what you want in Hungary. Um, and I would say to anybody you know, who goes back to 20, uh, 2011, actually, and says, there's this terrible media law, please tell me how many journalists have been put in prison in Hungary and how many journalists in Hungary have been murdered? The answer to both is zero. So, uh, you know, in a way, this is hype. And if you will allow me, let me tell a personal anecdote about the way in which the Western media work. Now, when I was a member of the European Parliament, I was basically the spokesman for the Hungarian delegation's uh, contacts with the West. Mm -hmm. And so regularly I was interviewed by quite senior Western journalists, you know, partly because my English was better than anybody else's. Um, and I, I knew the Western media, having worked for the BBC myself many years ago. So I had a certain intimacy, the way in which these things worked. Um, just before the elections in 2018, I was interviewed by a very senior journalist from the New York Times. We spoke for an hour, um, and I thought, fine. Uh, you know, I explained Phyllis's position. It was a perfectly amicable discussion. And then I looked forward to reading his article, which did appear. Nothing, not a word <laughs> of what I said, appeared in his I, article. I, Zero. That's, that's becoming increasingly the norm at the New York Times, it appears. But yeah. And it wasn't the New York Times, you know, same from the Financial Times, same from uh, what is called the Israeli mm. Haaretz, uh, same from the Guardian. So, you know, in a way, uh, they don't mm. want to hear these voices. They don't want to hear uh, their own belief system question because, you know, that makes people uncomfortable. So don't take at face value mm -hmm. what the Western media write about Hungary. So there's um, another aspect about Hungary, which I think is interesting as well, is so I, I know this Hungarian woman, she is middle-aged, she lives in Paris, but she, she's very Hungarian. Um, she, she, I think she used to vote for Fidesz, and now she's grown mm -hmm. very um, uncomfortable the past few months about the question of corruption, especially how um, a lot of the network around Orban are in the media, in um, top of um, different universities, the rest of it. And uh, corruption index, I think, has, has dropped a little over the last few years, the rest of it. Um, do, do you think there's a corruption issue in Hungary or uh, 
this hasn't changed much over the past 10 years. You know, the trouble with corruption, it's very difficult to measure. Mm. Uh, I think there's no question that um, the Hungarian state awards contracts on open tenders. That the bidder, the successful bidders, not invariably, but frequently, are the, are the best equipped because they've acquired the knowledge mm. uh, to put forward the best tenders. Mm. Probably there is some um, sympathetic uh, assessment of these tenders on the part of the Hungarian government. Um, is this corrupt? Is this simply uh, a patron-client system, uh, network? It's very, very difficult to know mm. where a network ends and a corrupt relationship begins. Mm. I don't know the answer. Yeah. What I would say is that, uh, is that what has evolved in Hungary over the last 10 years is a kind of etatist system. Not, it's not purely etatist. I mean, markets do work. But actually, the state controls a certain section of the economy, mm. even doing it through private corporations yeah. in the teeth of the European Union's competition policy, which, as you know, bans state aid. Mm. So it's a kind of very delicate balance. Is it corporatist? I'm not sort of, you know, in the Mussolini sense. In a, in a, to some extent, it is. But I think the state sector uh, in some other European countries, I think France, is actually probably bigger mm. than it is in Hungary. So is it corrupt? Well, obviously there's corruption. Um, in the construction industry, in every country in the world, there is, um, shall we say, overestimates, um, overbidding, the, the contract is never completely clear. So you do get that. Is there large-scale corruption? Well, the answer is that there hasn't been a really big corruption trial as far back as I can think. Mm. And the judiciary is by far from being pro-fidus. Uh, the judiciary is very mixed. There was a judgment at the beginning of the year. It's a complicated story. It's to do with the Roma issue, mm. which went dead against what the Hungarian government preferred. Uh, so, you know, the Supreme Court, the Curia, also brings in judgment. So it's not true that the judiciary are in the pockets of, of the government, uh, which is, I know, is a point made. Um, anything else you want to ask on this? Uh, I mean, I'll, I'll no, I think, I think we, we definitely... We, we definitely had to talk about it. Yeah. Uh, because it's, it's, I think it's something, if you're in the West... You'll, you'll rarely hear the other side of a story. Now, that does not mean there's not issues and things um, of concern, but I think it's interesting to get a different perspective on this because, as you say, Hungary, Hungary being a bit isolated because of its language, it's hard to find different perspectives. Let me just add one thing, that there is corruption, I think, in every European country. Yeah. Probably least of all in Finland, which always comes out uh, at the top of the transparency index. Um well, I mean, think about the whole diesel gate in Germany. <laughs> you know, so uh, all I can tell you is, um, don't just look at Hungary, yeah. or you know, the saying, "People who live in glass houses should not throw stones." Yeah. Uh, that uh, it's difficult, uh, and 
I think it's very, very difficult for the European Union to have adequate oversight. Um, the OLAF reports on Hungary, which some of which have been very critical, refer to the past, refer to the pre-2010 past. Mm. One came out very recently. So uh, I wouldn't for one moment say Hungary is squeaky clean, but I don't think it's significantly worse than uh, some other countries Definitely. in the European Union. And and you know I'm 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 really glad, Professor, that we're that we're uh, picking apart these different accusations and these different claims that are made by uh, the bureaucratic establishment in Brussels, but also by its allies in the media against Hungary and Poland. And I'm that's that's precisely what the media is, seems to be loath uh, to doing is that they're not going they're not actually making the journalistic effort to cross check their claims against actual like on the ground knowledge and. So well, I can tell you something about this. I mean, I do have talked to um, Western media representatives in Hungary, and they more or less freely admit that their job is not, if you like, an objective yeah. assessment of Fidesz, but to be as critical of Fidesz yeah. as they possibly can be. And it's become almost like a platitude to say that there is, you know, democratic backsliding, which is the, the preferred... A jargon, or and it's become this sort of elite hysteria that the, these claims are being tossed around by by journalists and by uh, you know. Well, uh, I would add, I was actually present in the European Parliament. I'm sorry, in the Hungarian Parliament. Of correction, when Hillary Clinton came to Budapest and talked about democratic backsliding. The, the mm. thing about democratic backsliding is who decides what constitutes backsliding. Right. You know, um, can Hungary say to, let's say hypothetically, Belgium, excuse me, you haven't had a government for over 600 days. Aren't you backsliding democratically here? Uh, you know, I mean, where, where does this begin? Where does this stop? Why is yeah. it that only the West can say, oh, well, uh, you remember the hanging chads in Florida? Uh, Bush was elected in whichever year it was. Nobody in Europe said, shouldn't we send in OECD monitors to look how elections are held in the United States? Yeah. I mean, you know, who, 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 who starts the process? And right. the answer and is the West. The reason why I think it's particularly problematic that the media is not doing its job when it comes to um, substantiating and, and buttressing with facts their, their accusations is because when you actually do that work, we look at the, the issue of the judges and what has happened in, in Poland, for instance, is that is, is a reform, as you were describing earlier, that seeks to bring greater accountability on the judiciary and to have them be more accountable and to have, you know, and, and, and there's there's so much, I mean, it's just almost laughable. Is that not exactly what happens in, in, in say, the states that, you know, the judicial appointments are made by the elected government and that it goes through a confirmation process that the, that the initial appointment is made by the government it the, the the issue of judicial accountability it's 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 never you know when the accusation is made against poland it's never checked against the you know the theory is how the the judiciary should operate and in, in the ideal state can, can i just stop you for one second because i haven't given an answer on immigration which you raised. Uh, one point on, on this appointment of judges, 
it is very difficult. Uh, how do you uh, choose judges and ensure their independence, especially constitutional court judges? And if you look at Finland, the squeaky clean Finland, you will see that the constitutional court judges are actually picked, I think, by the Minister of Justice. I may have to be corrected on this. Uh, there's no parliamentary oversight. In Hungary, constitutional court judges are appointed by a two-thirds majority of parliament. Uh, so, you know, there's uh, uh, checks and balances, uh, shall we say. Okay, let's move on to the, the big picture. Oh, no, the immigra immigration, I'm sorry. Okay, well, basically, again, to go back a little bit, um, Hungary has been the recipient of about 300,000 immigrants since 1990. These are overwhelmingly ethnic Hungarians from Romania, Serbia, Slovakia. Um, so they're foreigners, but they're Hungarian foreigners. Um, that's especially true of the Transylvanians. They're in a foreign country, but they've been integrated. It helps that they speak the language, obviously. And then the Hungarian record on this was not bad. The Hungarian record on... I've now forgotten exactly how many tens of thousands of Bosnian refugees during the war. Um, let me tell you a little curiosity. In southern Hungary, in a little town called Siklos, quite close to the border with Croatia, um, there's a mosque. It was built during the Ottoman occupation. Uh, when the refugees arrived, they were held partly in a camp nearby, and with Saudi money, that mosque built, I think, in the 16th century was restored. Very attractive. So, you know, it's now used for worship and was used for worship. And that's, you know, with the, the full support of the then Hungarian government. So, you know, but there's a comparative openness uh, to refugees. But what was happening uh, in 2014, actually, was a seepage of refugees, migrants, we'll have to make a distinction between those two, from Kosovo. Now, what was happening is that Serbia refused to recognize the existence of Kosovo, which by then had declared its independence. So they were technically Serbian citizens. So they got Serbian passports, arrived in Hungary, and said, I'm a Serbian, I'm a Serbian. And these Hungarian authorities said, fine. And then they moved on to Germany. And there were, I don't remember the exact number, but again, it wasn't just a few thousand, but tens of thousands. So in a way, the Hungarian government, by 2015, knew that there was pressure coming, migratory pressure coming from the south. And for some months, the frontier was open, the so-called Green Frontier. People just came and went as if there were no Hungary. I mean, you know, the, some of the stories I think are fantasy, but some are real. Some of them were very well off. Obviously, the whole family clubbed together in Syria or Iraq or wherever. Um, and a certain one story may even be true of somebody arriving in Hungary, finding a taxi and saying, take me to Vienna, here's 500 euros. So that's not an, a poverty-stricken down at heel, miserable refugee. That's something else. But this is where I have to make the distinction between an immigrant and a refugee. 
Refugee is somebody who's open to political persecution, fear of life for whatever reason. Um, Geneva Convention regulates this. Hungary has always admitted refugees. There's never been a problem with this. What Hungary says is we don't admit immigrants. That this is an economic issue. We really don't need immigrants. And if they want to go through Hungary, please go through the proper process as enshrined in the European Union's Dublin regulations. Hungary is a Schengen country. So coming in, countries coming in from Serbia, a non-Schengen country, have to go through passport check and so on and so forth. And you know, when 200,000 people, as happened, march through Hungary, if you stay, the Hungarians said, well, wait a minute, what's happening to our sovereignty here? And, well, I was in Budapest quite a few times that summer, and there were these spaces in central Budapest which were entirely occupied by immigrants. I think they were mostly immigrants. Um, and you know, there was a strong sense that the Hungarian state was losing its control over this territory. And there's a further fact, two further factors here. One was the determination of the Hungarian government to break the business model of the human traffickers. Yeah. And secondly, not very well known, Hungary has the third largest Jewish community in Europe, who are all the descendants of Holocaust survivors. A few, I think, are still actual Holocaust survivors. 70 years now, so they would have been very young. It's a tragedy. And the Hungarian government takes the view that it has an enormous responsibility towards the Jewish community. So when there is a large number of mostly Muslim refugees, special measures were taken to guard the Jewish quarter, the, uh, the synagogues uh, in central Budapest. And I think that that obligation, bear, bearing in mind, you know, what happens in Bataclan, uh, in, in Brussels and more and Mordebeek and so on. Um, so I think the Hungarian government uh, very much did the right thing in saying we don't want a significant Muslim population. There is a Muslim population in Hungary, actually. It's not very large, maybe five, maybe 10,000, and they're scattered. So, you know, they, they integrate, they do learn Hungarian. Um, there was even an Arab member of the Hungarian parliament at one stage, spoke very fluent, rather ungrammatical Hungarian, very, very nice man, uh, Lebanese, I think he is. Um, and so the economic argument was that Hungary doesn't need migrants. The legal argument is Dublin regulations. The moral argument is, well, we actually do not have a moral obligation towards the Middle East. Um, that's a Western problem. Hungary never had overseas colonies. Indeed, it was a colony itself, something which nobody recognizes. You know, a colony of the Ottoman Empire, colony of Austria, colony of the Soviet Union. A colony in the sense of absence of agency. Um, the Hungarian nation, Hungarian state, did not have the right to decide its own future. So we don't have post-colonial guilt. Now that's very difficult for the West to understand. Um, and it's just this general sense that we're not going to allow the Hungarian state to be the plaything of the West 
just because the West wants Hungary to take in refugees are now moving on to the quota, uh, we're not going to do it. Um, and then there are other little historical things. Now, you will remember I mentioned the Treaty of Trianon and today it is centenary, uh, 1920, that um, carved up Hungary. So the West basically creates a demographically new Hungary. Uh, as a result of Potsdam in 45, uh, Hungary is made to, is allowed to, it's sort of in between, to expel its German minority. Well, actually about half of them are expelled. So the number of Germans in Hungary, they are long settled German speakers uh, in 1945 was about half a million. Uh, and this goes down to about a quarter of a million. They're still there. They all speak Hungarian. Most of them speak some version of German. And I remember sitting in a restaurant, the table next to me, there were four men, and they were moving between Hungarian and German. I, my German's not bad, but they were speaking a dialect because they could have come from the other side of the moon. Uh, so they had no idea which language they were speaking. They were switching from one to the other. So, you know, this is a well-integrated minority. But I think that there's a certain sense in which there's a feeling in Hungary we do not want any more demographic um, uh, engineering, I think would be the polite term. So the, the migration problem has to be seen in the light of these various factors. There seems to be a real shock when, you know, when people saw Hungary's response to the stream and the inflow coming in through the Serbian border. Um, and, but there, there wasn't really any effort to really understand where Hungary is getting its perspective on multiculturalism and migration from. And, you know, it, it, there's no effort made to understand that Hungary, you know, has, as you mentioned, the, those past experiences with, you know, demographic engineering that didn't go well. The fact that, you know, it got, you know, so much of its territory was, was, um, was cut out uh, after Trianon, the fact that there is no post-colonial guilt, as you said, the fact that Hungary um, looks at the West and it's failed experiment with multiculturalism and says, we don't want to go there. I want to, I want us to look at a larger uh, picture here. Uh, when, you know, when, when we talk about the, the delegitimization of Hungary in, in Western corners, um, it seems to me like there's a deeper problem here. And it's one that you and I were discussing just before we went live. Uh, you had a really interesting review in, in The Critic, which is a great UK magazine of, uh, uh, of Anne Applebaum's A Twilight of Democracy. And Anne Applebaum is really kind of uh, uh, the epitome of this worldview is the West expected, when the, with the fall of the Berlin Wall, with the fall of communism, the West expected that Central and Eastern Europe was going to, was going to embrace the same version of liberalism that had been ascended in the West. And things haven't turned out quite that way. And I wonder if you can delve a little deeper into that and, and how that's kind of uh, shaping your, your thinking. Well, uh, let's, let me just say something about Anne Applebaum's book, just for disclosure. I have met her, but not for very many years. Um, we don't get on, let me add. Um, but what I want to say about the book is that, in some respects, my critique of the book is methodological, uh, because I think it's methodologically a bad book. Uh, she personalizes things, um, really to an extreme extent. She doesn't really know what she means by democracy. Uh, 
things of this kind. But, and then, although she does know Polish and Russian, um, she reads these languages and so on, she has her American preconceptions with her British experience, uh, and these are the ones that structure her thinking. So she has a particular view of the West being good, uh, inherently good, and why won't these wretched Central Europeans adapt? Why do they insist on doing these weird things, whatever they may be, or whatever she objects to? Um, she's not alone, let me add. We've, we've picked on her, if you like, not even all that unfairly, as a symbol of a very particular set of Western attitudes mm. towards Central Europe. It's not just Hungary. Um, it's sort of semi-colonial. You know, we have the, the high moral ground, or if you like, we're on the right side of history. I don't know that history has sides, by the way. And if history does have sides, does it also have a top and a bottom? And who says which is the right side? Well, the answer is, well, you know, I think I'm on the right side of history. Who the hell knows? So what I want to suggest here is that what we're looking at is a very concerted effort by various people in the West, Applebaum being one of them, to grab the agenda and to say, we will tell you what is democratic, what is not. And if you deviate from that, then thunder and lightning follow. Now, that raises a very straightforward question about what is democracy? Um, is democracy, and this is part of the argument I make in my police book, that is democracy about only about values, or is it about consent to the government, to be governed, mm -hmm. consent to be ruled? And I think it has to be a mixture of the two. But the values people like Applebaum and her uh, ilk um, say it's about values. Mm -hmm. And the consent of the government doesn't really matter. They won't say that out loud. But the point I made earlier about the cordon sanitaire uh, basically makes the same point, that our values are the only democratic values. And anyone who deviates from that is cast into outer darkness. Now, this, I think, it's not my idea of democracy. Uh, I think you have to have the consent of the government. It's never going to be 100%. Uh, in fact, if it is 100%, uh, you're looking at something very dubious indeed. Brief moments, yes. Uh, you know, like in the Hungarian Revolution of 1956, there was probably a 98% support for the revolution. Um, I happened to be in Czechoslovakia during the Soviet invasion in 1968, mm. pure chance. And there again, in Czechoslovakia, there was a kind of 90% agreement uh, that what was happening was positive. This happens very rarely, very seldom. Um, most of the time there will be, you know, if you get 70-80% support, you're doing very well indeed. Mm. Um, so as far as democracy is concerned, there's always a delicate balance. And here I want to mention Isaiah Berlin again, who I think is probably the most interesting 20th century liberal thinker. I'm not a follower of Rawls in this respect who says that values will always clash. Mm. He uses the word 
values can be incommensurable. Like, let's say, security against justice. If you push one too far, you will injure the other. Uh, or justice and mercy, etc., uh, etc. Et so what I'm suggesting is that it's the equilibrium that matters. And this is where we get back into conflict resolution, which I think was the, uh, the origin of the European Integration Project, which I think has now been abandoned, not completely, uh, but uh, is much weaker now than it was, even when I entered the European Parliament in 2004, which I think is a bad augury for what's going to happen to Europe in the foreseeable future, unless pe people slowly recognise that uh, they're going the wrong way. Mm. So I, I want to ask you a question about the divide between East and West, which has been growing in, in the EU for a, long, for a long time, it divided between North and South, but now we're seeing the divide between East and West become as important, if not more important, between the divide in East and West. And I want to make a small caveat on that divide because people say they're very different. And if we look at public opinion in France and, and the UK and, and Germany, they actually tend to be, you know, more restrictive on immigration than you'd think. They actually sometimes tend to be closer to Eastern Europe than you yeah. think. That said, the big difference between East Europe and West Europe is the so-called populists have managed to take power in East Europe and in Western Europe, with the exception of a stint in Italy and, 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 and the Brexit result. There's a feeling that the populists can't really take power. What do you think kind of distinguishes that difference? Is it because of the communist experiences of the fact that there's a form of guilt in the West which constrains us from, from going towards populism and, and some kind of national affirm, um, affirmation of identity? How do you explain that difference between East and West? Well, I think partly it's to do with the proposition that from that in 1989, if you like, liberalism, perhaps the word liberalism should be in quotes, won. It was victorious. And it's been victorious steadily uh, over religion, uh, over nationhood, uh, over communism, so that actually this is something that works. And until really the last five to ten years, the inequalities which have emerged um, in France, in Britain, Germany, Italy, wherever you go, Spain I don't know so well, um, were tolerable. So that the liberal democratic proposition was working. And that, I think, has left or casts a deep shadow or a long shadow that for most people, the system is all right, but actually could be subjected to small corrections, um, which means that somebody like Marine Le Pen uh, or Chaos Builders can come up with an argument and get a certain amount of genuine support. It seems to be sticking at sort of 25 to 30%. Um, and whether this, this is not, I think, stable, I think it's a dynamic process. Um, and it's also partly to do with how well uh, the liberal system works. Um, at the moment, it's sort of working. Um, but if it can't cope with the challenge from the centre-right, uh, radical-right, whatever right you want to call it, or conservative right even, then I think its own mistakes 
uh, will end up as undermining mm. it. And this is the problem that I've been trying to get at, is that the monopoly of thought, you know, creates a groupthink. We live in an echo chamber. Uh, you remember the poem by Yeats, The Second Coming, The Falcon Cannot Hear the Falconer. And this, I think, I used that in, in one of my articles, you remember, mm -hmm. in Contested Europe. And I think this is the danger, uh, that the, the elite, which is hegemonic, or thinks it is, can't, doesn't want to, cannot, I don't know, both of these probably, hear legitimate criticism and dismisses all criticism as illegitimate. And that's where the danger lies. That takes it in the direction of communism, which then falls apart under, to use the old Marxist phrase, its own mm -hmm. inherent contradictions. We're not there yet, but I see that as a possible scenario. Yeah. That does seem to be happening in the United States, which I don't follow very closely. Um, and I'm not sure that what I see, which is headline stuff, actually tells me, is this really happening at the deeper mm. level? Uh, you know, the, the idea that a significant proportion of the American population no longer cares about the Constitution. Mm. You know, that was the holy of the holy of holies mm. in America. But we will see uh, what happens with... Uh, I think the American election. This, yeah, this leads us to the, um, to the question of illiberalism. What is illiberalism? Because it sounds a bit scary. It sounds a bit daunting, but it has now been presented well, as a kind of counterproduct to um, to liberalism, to um, liberal democracy. And it was it was first uttered by Orban in 2014 in a speech, and he hasn't used it that much since. Yeah. But it has been kind of a structural yeah. word to, to to describe in a negative way or in a positive way, depending on when you stand. What going on in in Hungary? So it'd be interesting if you could give us kind of a, an overview of what it is. Sure. Um, as far as I recall, I wasn't present when he made that speech. I've been going to that uh, summer university in Romania many times, but I don't think I was there that year. Um, basically, if you read the speech carefully, which not many people did, he's talking about economic liberalism, which creates inequalities. And you know, when he uses the word illiberalism or illiberal, he says, but of course, we ab absolutely guarantee the traditional freedoms of, uh, of democracy. But that bit is always left out. Um, so basically, in the first instance, uh, liberal in Hungarian usage is an economic liberal. Mm -hmm. The social liberal was adopted later from the West. And I think it's, those, both those have to be borne in mind. But it's moved on since then, since 14. Um, and I think a liberal is now basically being redefined as national conservative. Mm. That's to say, I think I'm right in saying that liberalism has no time for religion, tradition, family. Mm. Um, so this has now become uh, the keystone of Orban's project, whether you want to call it national conservatism or Christian democracy or illiberalism. He's used all three, so there's some ambiguity. At the moment, I think you're right, he's uh, not using, he's still using illiberalism. I think he used it in one of his speeches at the beginning of the year, I don't recall exactly when, but it's not so central. It was also, by the way, I think, 
said as a provocation. Uh, and it worked. You know, it really did provoke people to apoplexy, paroxysm of fury. Uh, and it also said, we in Hungary are the alternative. That went down very badly, as you can imagine. You know, whomever the prime minister's wordsmith or speechwriter was that, that came up with that, it was a very successful turn of phrase, liberal democracy. It, it was almost designed to shock the consciences of the apple bombs of the world and and, and all it, it do, my, my question would be, do you think Hungary is fated, um, given how, you know, the rest of Europe seems devoted to its own version of, you know, individually centered liberalism? And, and do, do you think that Hungary is, as Prime Minister Orban's speech seemed to suggest, fated to become a reference point for conservatives? I mean, it, it, it's really interesting. You and I were discussing just offline how, um, I believe, as a, after... Uh, the prime minister visited the White House um, the first time shortly after uh, Donald Trump was elected. Uh, that sort of like thrust Hungary out into the news cycle and, 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 and the conversation in a way that hadn't been the case since the, 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 the fall of the wall. And Hungary really is becoming, it, it really is um, infiltrated. It, it's, it's part of the conversation in a way that it wasn't, right? Uh, do you think it's, it's still going to become a reference for, it's going to stay around going for national conservatives? All I can say is that, to some extent, this depends on what happens to this national conservatism in the West. Now you know that um, relations with Salvini in Italy are quite good. Relations with Gert Wilders in the Netherlands are also reasonably good. Hungary, Fidesz, will have absolutely nothing to do with the alternative for Deutschland. Uh, we think that's beyond the pale. We maintain a relationship, especially with Bavaria, with the CSU, but also with the Christian Democrats in Germany. Um, I think that Orban's position on the Rassemblement at uh, uh, Marine Le Pen is that they are not us. So we will talk to them, but I don't know what will happen with uh, Marie Maréchal, because I think what she's developing, but correct me or contradict me, is a very interesting French Catholic view of the French identity. So away from laicisme, which you know, has been the dominant current in France pretty much since the revolution, um, can you be French and Republican and Catholic, or indeed even Protestant? Um, and I think we'll see what happens to that because it hasn't matured to the degree and we don't know what's happening to it politically at the moment. You may or may not agree with me. I see Mario Maréchal's project as primarily an intellectual one rather than a directly political uh, one. As of now, absolutely. As of now, she's yeah. focused on her school. But, she's focused on 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 speaking yeah. engagements and whatnot. But I think she's she's pretty clear about this, and I don't think she sees her being a potential. She sees herself being a potential candidate in twenty twenty two. She's probably well, we'll aiming see. for. We will see on verra, as they say in French. It's, 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 mm, it's a potential. Um, so, and I don't know that we have, <coughs> excuse me, any relations with the Sweden Democrats uh, or the true Finns. Um, but basically, some kind of a 
what shall I call it? There is a, a, a current of non-liberal, probably illiberal thought, uh, more or less everywhere uh, in Europe. I will also add Vox in Spain to this. Um, mm -hmm. Is it there in Portugal? If so, I'm not aware of it. Um, in it's 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 very it's burgeoning. Okay. It's very small so far. There, there is there um, yeah. is Portugal is a very interesting country where actually there's been a very successful socialist government for the last few years, mm -hmm. and I don't have an explanation. Um, I don't follow Portugal closely <laughs> enough. Also, Portugal. I can sort of make out about 60% of Portuguese when it's written, but I can't understand a word of it when it's spoken. And, I, you know, one of my favourite places for holiday is Madeira. So we go there every year, my wife and I, but luckily everybody speaks English. So, you know, I can, I can read the signs and I know more or less what they mean, but when they start speaking, God knows. How, heaven alone knows how those words can be pronounced that way. And I asked one of my Portuguese colleagues about this and said, well, the secret is, you see, that in European Portuguese, we don't pronounce the vowels, we only pronounce the consonants. Well, the reason I was asking is, you know, I, I think that for as long as uh, national populism remains um, in opposition in Western Europe, Hungary is always going to be a reference point, is my, my um, humble, my, my modest view. I think that um, on migration, on uh, culture, on identity, nationhood, these are all always going to be fronts where Hungary is, is going to be a, a reference point of sorts. And I, which brings me to my quick follow-up question, which is, um, having served uh, for three terms, I believe, right, in, in the European Parliament, do you have at this point any inside baseball, kind of like inside knowledge from your former colleagues as to whether it is in, in the, um, it is being talked about the, the possibility that Fidesz may leave the the the, the EPP coalition? Oh, it's talked about, but it's not happening. Mm. Uh, well, it's a very complex and difficult issue, which again takes one back to what is the identity of People's Party, which is a relatively new formation from 2000, no, mid-90s, I think, is when uh, Wilfried Martins, among others, started to define it. So it's a kind of uh, follow-on from Christian democracy, but broader than that. Well, that project at the moment is weak. A section of the People's Party, the EPP, is really liberal, liberal, liberal end of conservatism, um, about 15-20%, and they can't bear the presence of Fidesz, partly because they're under pressure from their own liberal media. It's very difficult, you know, for a Swedish conservative, you know, moderate party, moderaterna, to say, well, yes, we are in the same group as Fidesz, but actually the Fidesz is not what you think it is. And the media then say, oh, yes, it is. It's very difficult. Um, but it's, it, in a way, the EPP is at a crossroads. Uh, it's got to decide, is it actually a liberal party committed to the liberal, the liberal version of European integration, or is there a conservative view of European integration? And at the moment, it's sort of leaning towards the liberal view. Mm. But I would add that Fidesz is not alone uh, in EPP. This, I think, was a bit of a shock for the EPP left to discover that uh, Forza Italia, um, the 
Parti Popular in Spain, the Republicans in France. <laughs> a lot necessarily pro-Fides, but they're certainly not anti-Fides. And we do have some allies, the Slovenes, some of the Czechs, uh, not with the Poles because the Poles sit with ECR. Um, so, and the, you know, actually, I think some of the 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 Finnish right is not unsympathetic. Some of it is very hostile to Fidesz. So it's it's a scattered position, and I think the EPP really doesn't know what to do with Fidesz. Um, some of it, but let me add, only some of it is to do with the president of the EPP, Donald Tusk, who's become very anti-Fides. And I don't know what the roots of that are, but it's part of the story. Um, And, well, you know, it's up in the air. Fides has now been suspended for a year and a half, which means it doesn't sit in the EPP as party, but the Fides delegation is still part of the EPP parliamentary group. It's a kind of very uneasy situation. It's not really good for either. But Fidesz has no intention of leaving the EPP. That's partly to do with our relationship with the CDU. Hungary accepts that. Hungary's relationship with Germany determines Hungary's future. So, you know, it's a kind of Tino, you remember, there is no alternative uh, kind of situation here. And secondly, Hungary's other major foreign policy uh, project is the V4, which has been very successful. Um, we are now much closer to each other politically, uh, economically, than we were, let's say, when I was elected uh, in, th- in 2004. Um, I was present at a V4 summit, not last year, the year before, during the Hungarian presidency of the V4, and I saw as it were, live in front of me, the four prime ministers. And it was very clear that they got on very well together. Uh, the, the chemistry was good. Um, and if you go back to history and look at how bad relations have been between Hungary and Slovakia, not brilliant between Hungary and the Czechs, you know, we've always loved the Poles. Uh, uh, and the Poles may or may not love us, I'm not sure. Uh, but... Clearly, um, something has come together uh, in the V4, and there are joint projects. I mean, if you look at uh, EU investment policy, uh, it was Andre Babish who said this at that meeting. We'd been members at that point for, I suppose, uh, 14 years. Not a single kilometre of CGV track had been built in any of the V4 countries. And I think the first one that will be built is the real Baltica, which will go from Tallinn to uh, Vilnius and then to Poland. Uh, Now, you know, it's a long time to wait. So, you know, the big projects, the Grand Projet, don't happen in Central Europe. At that point, what kind of equality are we talking about? Um, I don't know if you know about the blue banana. No. The banana blue, actually. It's a French geographer coined the term, if you uh, draw a line from roughly from Manchester to Milan, uh, then this is where the European high-tech is concentrated, and it roughly has the shape of a banana. Uh, Central Europe is excluded from this. Uh, So we don't get the investments. 
into innovation. This is going to become absolutely vital with digitalization and indeed the green agenda. And I think we do have some contribution to make. Uh, it's a mistake for uh, the West to, let's say, politely ignore Central Europe. Yeah, exactly. And, and which is, it, it's really um, uh, uh, outrageous, I, I believe, to see that Western Europe has so waited out. It, 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 is so, it has been in such retreat from these necessary investments that, by the way, are made necessary, and correct me if I'm wrong, but they're made necessary in the region by <laughs> decades of Soviet mismanagement. And uh, and it's really outrageous to see that. It, it, it's had to be uh, Mike Pompeo's Department of State and the United States that have recently moved in with the Three Seas Initiative. Um, we've the the west europeans have left a vacuum of like you said investment in in central europe and now um along with the baltics i believe which are some, some of the baltic states right are also part of they're all part of it and the next summit will be in about three weeks in tallinn mm. where i'm sitting now i see well and, uh, I, I, and the, the, this is driven by poland mm. and it couldn't be done without poland poland is the key country mm. and to the best of my knowledge all the, I think, 11 countries are on board with this. Mm -hmm. So the three Cs are the Baltic, the Adriatic, and the Black Sea. Uh, I, I seem to understand from the case you just laid out that you are of the opinion that Fidesz should maybe try to stay in the EPP for now and see how things play out and try to build a coalition within it. I, I wonder if you wouldn't mind me offering kind of the opposite view, which is that um, it, it seems to me like, you know, Fidesz could substantially, profoundly, and irreversibly alter the balance of power in Europe if it chose to pluck itself out of the EPP, uh, maybe go somewhere like ECR, which is, I think, where they naturally and ideologically belong. Because it, it seems to me, and this is, again, this is just my own suspicion of, of Merkel uh, and, and her um, uh, CDU, it seems, it seems to me like the CDU is, is really using Fidesz if, they're, if they are holding the party suspended uh, uh, but but still using the votes in the parliamentary grouping so that you know it's um, the EPP's initiative still have a greater chance of passing with Fidesz's vote. Fidesz providing a massive uh, contingent of MEPs. It seems like they they're really kind of using it and they're doing so at the same time as uh, EPP commissioners, EPP um, uh, you know power brokers and and personalities are are constantly pouncing on 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 Fidesz's government. In Budapest, so it, it, it doesn't seem. I mean, I, I understand your view, but I, I do think that the the more that we let this drag on, the greater the case is going to be for Fidesz to just say, like, listen. Uh, let me disagree with you. It, uh, it may be what you say may be correct at some stage in the future. We're not there yet. We haven't crossed that threshold, and the Fidesz relationship with the CDU remains pivotal. So you know, we both get something out of it, and. Just before the virus broke, um, I was talking to people in Budapest, uh, Germans as well as Hungarians who are saying, we're getting closer to one another. Uh, and Merkel went to Hungary, huh, I think it would have been August last year, and actually had a, you know, the anniversary of the opening of the Iron Curtain uh, in '89. Um, and it was a very good visit. So, you know, at one time, relations between Merkel and Orban were really very strained. Uh, I remember being at an EPP Congress in Madrid some years ago. It was very clear. They were kilometers from each other. But it's no longer true. 
And I think that the migration shock for Germany uh, has changed the CDU. So, as I say, it's a dynamic process. It could go the way uh, you suggest. And then one other thing I would add, Hungary is a small state. Small states only very, very rarely change the course of history in Europe. We're too small for that. And we shouldn't be overambitious. You know, we present an alternative. Uh, that's fine. We're not going to be uh, the people who are going to, if you like, transform the rest of Europe. That's, that's, that's an, it's inconceivable. So we can come up with ideas, uh, but we don't have the, the throw weight uh, to be able to achieve that. So one last question before, uh, before we let you go, uh, Professor. Um, yeah. I'm not sure if you followed the French-European campaign a few months ago, but it, it, um, EPP, uh, Les Républicains candidate, was a young philosopher, François-Xavier Bellamy. And uh, after he was elected um, in, in, uh, for, for the European Parliament, he was tasked by Manfred Weber of the CSU and the Spitzing candidate for the EPP to put together a common platform for the EPP. Now, unfortunately, I think with COVID, the, the platform was never released. Um, but... Let me stop mm -hmm. you there. Uh, they haven't had the definitive meeting. Mm. It's going to be held in uh, mid-October. Uh, mid so they're working okay. on it. So first of all, do you have any insights? And if you were in, in charge of putting that platform, being one platform which would be both... Um, insightful, but also one capable of uniting all the different parties in the EPP. How would you do, and is it possible? Oh, well, ironically, I would go back to Article 2 of the treaty, one which is regularly raised against Hungary. Now, contrary to almost universal belief, it doesn't begin with rule of law or human rights. It begins with human dignity. Hmm. And if the EPP were to formulate a platform not an ideology, I think, a set of ideas centering on human dignity, I think it could, if you like, reunite. It may lose some of the smaller Scandinavian parties, I don't know. Um, but I think that could create a certain sense of, we're in this together, we have an alternative, uh, we're not a, a liberal party, we're not a left-wing party. We have a a message to the voters as to what it means. And one other thing to which I draw your attention, it's all very new, happening in sort of mid-September, late September. Um, the European Parliament has set up a special committee on cancer. This is very close to mm. the heart of the EPP. And I think the EPP will mm. campaign on this, generally on the idea of Europe of security, which I think Macron has raised as mm. well. So, you know, there are common points. Mm. Uh, so it's a possibility that the EPP will find a new platform for itself, uh, at which point Fidesz will still be at the outer edge of it, mm. but will no longer mm. be a pariah. Well, that is that is that is fascinating, and and if if um you know if there's one thing that we really want to um wholeheartedly thank you for here, professor, is to share with us that latest uh, piece of inside baseball, as I, as I like to call it, which is always fascinating. And you know, and you having served uh, for so long in in the parliament and being still 
connected to the parliament to the sort of the political and parliamentary landscape uh, it, it makes for a very balanced and, and profound conversation for you to bring together kind of your intellectual work with your past political um, experience. So, um, it, it, you know, we are nearing towards um, not the hour, but the hour and a half. So you've been very gracious with your time. Well, a, a pleasure for me. Great. Well, uh, Mr. Shofflin is out and the interview is over now. Francois, what did you think? Well, I thought it was great having uh, George with us. He was a um, very learned man, a uh, lot of experience in the UK as an academic. So it's interesting to get this insider perspective on Hungary, but also with a lot of knowledge of the codes of the Anglo world, which makes it a lot more understandable and palatable. Because I think it's an important conversation to have on Hungary because it's been um, an issue of much fantasy. And part of the reason is because the Hungarian language is known to be very difficult to understand. So it's important <laughs> we have this conversation and have a different perspective on Hungary because Hungary knows it's a bit of a, it's a, it's a, bit of a boogeyman in the past few years. It's interesting to have, to have a different perspective on this. Now, that said, I'm not fully convinced by some of his answers, such as the answers on corruption. I thought, you know, Hungary has, has uh, been dropping or its ranking on corruption over the past few years. It says a few things. You know, there's a lot of nepotism, um, in, in Hungary around the Orban circles. And, you know, I think he, he wants to close the ranks with a party. That's understandable. But it's interesting to get a different perspective on Hungary because too often you can you can see this behind the kind of legitimate attacks on the rule of law and, and, and corruption. You can also see there's a political attack against a different model. Yeah, no, I, I, as you said, I think I think the, the whole point of this episode, which is which is why it was a success in my view, was to get the perspective of someone who is on the, the Orban side to be a little... Um, uh, kind of a binary here, but I think the special thing about George is that he's um, already retired from politics. He's got no, uh, you know, he's got no, he doesn't really have a dog in this fight anymore. Um, and as you said, I think he he still very much towed the line, especially on corruption. Um, but he brings to it also a sort of an academic perspective. He's uh, been part of the, the Hungarian diaspora in the UK, which is a large community. Um, and I think, you know, I think it's, it's, um, for, for what this is worth, I think it was a very timely episode just a couple of weeks back. This was shortly after we spoke to him, shortly after we recorded the episode. There was also um, uh, the, 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 um, the election of a very young uh, MP to, to the Hungarian parliament. Her name is, <laughs> this is going to be funny, I'm actually going to just paste the recording of Google Translate's pronunciation of, of this lady's name because I just will not dare to uh to venture to I, I will not attempt a pronunciation of this um uh zofia Kongs is the closest i can get but i'll still paste the recording in any event she won this young lady won a by-election in a in a constituency in borsod which is a sort of a, a middle-sized town which every, most of the media was expecting would be won by the opposition and even the economist you 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 wouldn't think um the economist would run a, a headline like this but the 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 way they reported on it was um, the Hungarian opposition is in trouble, and uh, they really are. I mean, um, one of the one of the things that Viktor Orban has been really um, skillful at at capitalizing on is a sense of um, you know um, Europe and the larger kind of globalist um, uh, system out there is trying to impose on Hungary a set of values and a set of policies that we Hungarians reject outright. And I am going to be 
defending you from the government and do as much as I can to, to, to protect you from, from that. So that's also the narrative that this lady was, was riding on as she won the election. Um, so I think people are going to be able, once they listen to the episode, to put that in perspective. And, and uh, George was, as you said, George is very enlightened. He's a very knowledgeable man. So I thought it was fantastic that we were able to get his perspective on, on Hungarian issues. Don't forget to rate and review us on Apple Podcasts. It really helps other people like find this podcast if you liked it. And uh, thank you very much. Thank you. See you next week.